0: Welcome back to IGN Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Ashi.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and we have a very special guest today. And I'm wearing my Capitol pin, the building of the Capitol, because she has served in the House of Representatives and is now running for the Senate. So it seemed like an appropriate pin to wear today.
0: It is the perfect pin. Um, and you will have to stay tuned uh to learn more about who that guest is. But first, Jill and I have some topics we want to discuss about because it's not even halfway into the week, and there has already been so much news um and a lot of legal news, um, starting with Judge Shutkin holding a hearing uh yesterday. Both the defense and the prosecution came in, and she landed on a trial date for the former president and hit for uh his trial um for his January 6th trial, and that is March 4th, 2024. Four, one day before the uh, Super Tuesday primary race, so Trump will be in court and not on the campaign trail. Um, I know uh, Jack Smith wanted shortly after the new year, but this is March 4th, 2024. How significant is that, and um, you know, what should we expect? Well,
1: first of all, um, it is only two months after the date that Jack Smith asked, and two years I- before Donald Trump asked. She was having none of his ridiculous requests for 2026, and she basically said, it's a non-starter. Give me a legitimate date. And his lawyer refused. His lawyer really did, I think, a bad job of advocacy by not giving something that was more appropriate. The date of 2026 was based on nonsense. Uh, He said, we have so many documents to review. And she said, this is the computer era. You can do a word keyword check,
0: Yeah,
1: eliminate all duplicates because, you know, you know, when you send an email and then it gets forwarded and forwarded and forwarded, all of those get produced, but they're all the same. So you only need one of those. So you can eliminate usually dozens of copies of things that would get forwarded. Um, So it's not that many documents and six months is a very reasonable trial date. Um so I thought that was interesting. Also interesting, which a lot of people have missed, is that she also said, and I spoke to the judge in the trial that is supposed to start two weeks after I'm yes. setting there was a the New, New York, York right? Yeah, the New York yeah. trial for his paying hush money and not reporting it as he was supposed to on business records um, was set for March twenty-fifth, I believe. So That's basically 20 days after, 21 days after, and the trial in the District of Columbia federal court is going to last more than three weeks. I have no doubt about that. So there must be some agreement that that trial date would be moved if the March 4th trial holds. Um, So that was interesting. Also interesting this week, of course, was the motion by um, Mark Meadows to get his case transferred to federal court on the grounds that he is a federal employee and has a right to have his, and and there is a statute that says you can remove when you are doing your job as a federal employee and a state sues you. The problem that he has is on issue number one, he has to establish that this was part of his job. And frankly, interfering in an election, Preventing the peaceful transfer of power is not in his job description, and that's what he was doing. So I don't think he's going to meet the criteria for removal, even though he is a federal officer who has the right to make that motion. So his making the motion isn't ridiculous, but I think it will not be successful.
0: I think one of the other things that maybe we can talk about that really struck me uh, about yesterday's hearing with Judge Chutkin was she urged twice, two times, for the defense lawyer to, quote, take the temperature down. And I'm wondering if you've ever experienced that in the courtroom and kind of what that says about our moment right now. Because, I mean, to me, the fact that she had to say twice to Trump's lawyer to just to take the temperature down, I mean, I don't think that should be happening in a courtroom, should it? Or that sort of attitude should be happening in the courtroom.
1: Well, I, I you know, there is a line that you – can go up to, but can't cross. Mm -hmm. And um, different judges have a different uh, height of the line, let's say. And I think Judge Shutkin has established herself as someone who will take no nonsense. He does not appreciate the histrionics, does not appreciate what he was doing. And the problem was he didn't have any substance behind Mm -hmm. it. It wasn't a passionate argument based on a belief in something. Uh, The fact that he wouldn't give an alternate date says a lot to me. And so, yes, hopefully he has learned and he will calm down. But, you know, we expect lawyers to be passionate in the defense of their point Mm. of view, but there is a a limit and he crossed it. Uh, And sometimes judges will intervene. I know that I've told you this story many times and it's in my book, The Watergate Girl, uh, where Judge uh, Sirica in both the tapes hearing and then later in the trial, interrupted my cross-examination in one case saying, now, Mr. Mardian, who was a defendant, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? Yes, yes. Horrifyingly sexist. And then when I was cross-examining Rosemary Woods about the 18 and a half minute gap, he intervened saying, we have enough problems in the courtroom without two women fighting. Well, this was cross-examination. It wasn't a catfight. And again, it was a sexist interpretation and was extremely distressing to me. But um, he, Judge Sirica doesn't, didn't like tension in his courtroom. And these were both tense moments because that's what happens when you have a liar on the stand. And it <laughs> so he was wrong to intervene. And he did later apologize to me. Um, Columbia Law School students wrote to him saying, that was terrible what you did. And he actually did apologize to me.
0: Oh, good, good. Well, I am loving this no-nonsense um, from Judge Chuck, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as this trial unfolds. Um, but let's move on to another topic, which is some good news. Uh, and President Biden today is recording this on Tuesday. Um, thanks to his Inflation Reduction Act, Medicare announced that it will negotiate prices for 10 different prescription drugs for the first time, which makes prescription drugs hopefully more affordable for all Americans. And some of the th- drugs i mean i personally have not heard of them before but i mean they are really important drugs that would help prevent strokes and blood clots drugs that would help uh you know with Type two diabetes and heart failure. I mean, these are really important things. And um, right before we came on here, I know last week we talked about um, the media's, um, some of the media's kind of downfall and, and failings when it comes to covering President Biden. But both MSNBC and CNN were covering the speech live, which I thought was really good news. Um, that they are that President Biden is finally getting the attention that he deserves. What, what did what did you think about this news? Because um, I look at this and I'm like, it's just another thing that this administration is doing so wonderful and um, is going to make sense a big difference i think
1: so i have two different reactions to it maybe three but let's start with uh, the first which is this is really good news for everybody um as you know victor i was on a very hot sweaty walk just before (laughs) we did the show with a cousin who is on two of those drugs and pays thousands of dollars and she was very happy to hear this so on on the actual drugs that have been selected. These are important life-saving drugs that cost way too much in America. So it is a terrific addition to his list of achievements and good acts. I am very happy that the speech was covered live. What I am distressed about is that we still have an American population that may hear this, but yeah. doesn't feel better about right. it. Right. And I am concerned and wish that I had an answer, but I don't as to how we could communicate to people the benefits that they are deriving every day from the actions of President Biden, how much he has done to actually help them, how seriously he takes climate change, for example, as opposed to the Republicans we heard debating. And today I heard uh, Ramaswamy repeat his oh, climate change as a hoax. and I, I,
0: And he said apparently what Mike Pence did on January 6th was wrong and that he should have decertified the election. I mean, it was nonsense.
1: It's so distressing to me. So I, I think what's important, and I'd love to hear from our audience, if they have any suggestions on how one can make people realize the benefits they're getting, not just hear them, but to really feel them. Because what will make people change their vote is how they feel, the emotional reaction to it, if they understand that. And I think, you know, now people are getting insulin at a greatly reduced, the people who are getting insulin, they know the benefit. And the people who will get eloquist will know the benefit and all the other drugs that are on the new list.
0: Yes. And 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 you know, I often think about what Hillary Clinton said to um Rachel Maddow a couple of weeks ago during um that when when the Georgia indictment was dropped. Um, and she said that, you know, what makes President Biden unique and what part of the challenge is, you know, he's not someone who is like Trump who cares about passion or cares about the likes and the clicks and all of that. He's just a policy, you know, boring type president. But you know, a lot of that's hard to break through. And and I wonder, I share your concern about, you know, how can we communicate that to people? How can we make something like what he did today exciting to people um, and get people to feel it and and be passionate about it and be you know enthusiastic about it that's um something i i, I hope that you know maybe our, our our audience which i know is very smart can provide us uh the answers um, but let's move on to our last topic, which is um, that people are slowly going back to school. I have a bunch of friends who have started high school already or are in the thick of their first semester. Um, and I we, we thought because the news is so heavy these days, we um, would do something lighter to end up our chit chat. Um, and uh, we thought of maybe sharing some of our favorite reads um, when we were in high school or college. Um, Jill, do you want to go first?
1: Well, let me just say high school is so long ago. <laughs> I'm not sure I can remember anything from high school but I do remember that I got a love of Russian literature. And, um, I I don't remember the particular book I read, but then I took Russian literature in college and have read, you know, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and many, many other great authors. And I could recommend a ton of those books. Um, I can, I do remember a book from grade school, um, Mm -hmm. 17, I think was the name by Booth Tarkington. And oh. it, it was one of those first books that introduced me from my library to my love of literature. Although I have to say nowadays, almost everything I read is nonfiction, just to stay current with the world that we have to live with and yeah. to protect. So what what are some of your favorites?
0: Of well, course I have to ask is 17 banned or is it safe can we do you think we can access it from the I don't, library?
1: I don't know i it with what's banned now it, it's uh, so hard to predict what people will go after it's it's uh, yeah
0: very oh. hard to predict in high school, I remember *To Kill a Mockingbird* had a really big impact on me, and I think that's just a classic. I know that's getting banned in some areas because you know, God knows why, but it's it's getting banned in some areas. I um, have loved, and I told you about this. From I took a class uh, last year at UCLA, um, and it was all about Virginia Woolf, and um, I loved just kind of. Just reading her experiences as a woman, how she, you know, Room of One's Own and um, her just battling sexism and um, being a feminist at the time was, it's just so inspiring. Um, Those are some of my favorite reads. Um, and recently I, I, I read this great, um, not uh, I guess, fiction book. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And if you are in the mood for fiction, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, but I know everyone is going back to school and there might not be much time to read for pleasure. But if you do get to read for pleasure, hopefully 17 is on your list and some yeah. of those books that um, we mentioned. Um, Room but of One's
1: Own, to- I have to say, Room of One's Own is definitely a book that had a huge influence on me. And I think everyone should read it. Um, all of Virginia Woolf is great, but yes. in particular, and a friend just recommended Chemistry Lessons to me. Oh, yes. being made into a movie. And I yes. just put it on my Kindle and started it. And it, it, it starts out great. So oh. I can't wait to read more of it. And I also have to add to the list. In February, there will be available Barbara McQuaid's book. Yes,
0: uh, yes. What is the title? The,
1: I have it right. Well, actually, I have a um I have an early copy.
0: Oh, okay, that's good. You, we we can't see the cover yet. Okay. Attack from within. Attack,
1: Attack from within. within. How disinformation is sabotaging America. And I think it's a great read. So yes. but you can get it until February.
0: And and uh, this month we're also gonna have on Heather Cox Richardson, who has a fascinating uh a forthcoming book out called Democracy Awakening Notes from the State Notes on the State of America. So um, we'll bring you that uh, book as well. Um, but let's get into our episode. Um, you know, when when we say 2024, when I say 2024, most listeners and viewers think about the presidential election. But it's just as important to remember that there are other races happening across the country, too. One is the race replace, to replace retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein to represent California in the U.S. Senate. Currently, there are three candidates running for that position on the Democratic side: Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. We have invited all three of them to join iGen Politics. And today, one of them, like Jill said, is joining us today.
1: And that candidate is Congresswoman Barbara. She is currently a member of the House. Of California's 12th district which includes Berkeley. I I guess they're, are they one of your big Competitors, uh, uh, Vic- we about them. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Oakland and Berkeley and Alameda, and she's been there since 1998. She was in the California House and Senate before that, and she is the highest-ranking African American woman appointed by the Democrats to the Democratic leadership. And she serves as co-chair of the Policy and um, Steering Committee. She also serves as the Budget Committee on the Budget Committee and the powerful Appropriations Committee. It's a great pleasure to have Barbara joining us today to talk about why she's running for the Senate and what she would hope to accomplish there. So Barbara, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Yeah, I'm really happy to be with you, It's exciting. So we have so much to talk about when it comes to your Senate race, but let's start by talking about how you got to where you are now, because it's pretty inspiring. Um, you grew up in segregated Texas. Talk about what it was like growing up there and what life was like there.
2: Boy, first, I'm uh, really happy to be with you guys. It's, it's an honor and a lot of fun to do something that's fun. But I, yeah, was born and raised in El Paso in an immigrant community. So I was raised with uh, primarily uh, Latino and Latinas uh, in the immigrant community who were my friends. And we um, had a, a tough time in El Paso because when I was growing up, of course, everything was segregated, I had to drink out of the colored only water fountain. I couldn't go to the, I, the Plaza Theater downtown because I was black, uh, it, it, was, it was rough. but. In our neighborhood, we said, to heck with that, we're gonna fight anyway and we're gonna be as equal as everybody else in this, in this city. And in context, my mother was the first African-American woman in El Paso uh, to integrate, then it was Texas Western, now it's the University of Texas at El Paso. The NAACP had a lawsuit and she was a plaintiff. And so she was working, taking care of her elderly father, my grandfather who we lived with, raising three girls, and going to school. And so she was one of the 12 plaintiffs. My grandfather was the first African-American letter carrier in El Paso. He had his degree from um, Austin Tillotson College and HBCU. And he spoke fluent Spanish. And this was a big deal in El Paso. He was 33rd degree Mason, active at the NAACP and his church the whole nine yards. My dad was in the military. Uh, He was in the, um, before I was born, he was in the 92nd Battalion Uh, based in Italy. This was the all-black battalion in the army supporting the Normandy invasion. Uh, When my father, he also was fought in Korea. When he came back to uh, El Paso, he and my mother got divorced. And uh, my dad went, well, he went back to Japan after Korea. He was stationed in Japan. And he married my stepmother, Reiko Tut. And so Reiko, uh, she and my mother became good friends because they had three girls, you know, us. And Reiko didn't have any children. And so we spent a lot of time with Reiko and I got a chance to learn a lot about uh, Japanese culture and and a lot about Japan through my stepmother uh, because I stayed with her on the weekend. And so you you can kind of see how um, diversity (laughs) was in my life from day one, yet the segregation and the diminishing of me and my family as black people was also in my life. The schools were um, segregated in El Paso And my mother and dad and grandfather and family said, no more segregation, even though uh, the black schools were probably the best schools, but they didn't want us to go to a black school because I was segregated. So we ended up going to Catholic school. So my sister and myself, we were the only two black kids in that school for eight years. And so it was really hard because although the teachers, sisters of Loretta, Monsignor Buchanan, they sort of helped me out because they understood what I was going through. And I'll give you an example. Whenever in the books, in, the, in our textbooks, the issue of slavery, and of course, no black history, but slavery was raised as a period of time in a negative way, like it was the slaves, enslaved people's fault that they were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the class would look at me with a like real bummer. Now this is as a child, I'm growing up. Wow. It was awful. But yet these were my friends. And so I had a lot of white friends because that's all it was at St. Joseph's School. So we would play together, you know. I was on the drill team, played tennis. I was Girl Scout Brownie. And and so I had a lot of white friends. But when they had theater parties, like at the Plaza Theater, I couldn't go with my white friends because I was black. And uh, but yet in, in class, whenever enslaved people were either written about or talked about in terms of slavery, it was like a real downer for me because everyone would look at me like, what is wrong with you and your family, you know? So it was a real crazy life, but it was a wonderful life because I could go to the military base to Fort Bliss and we could eat at the officer's club. We could go to the swimming pool. This was after the military was desegregated. And so Fort Bliss became sort of like a safe haven for us because we couldn't participate. We, you know, the swimming pools were um, segregated. There was only one pool in El Paso we could go to. And, um, and so that's how I grew up. But let me just real quickly tell you how I was born because this, this sheds light onto who I am today. My mother needed a C-section and uh, she went to the hospital. They wouldn't let her in. It was a white, naturally a white hospital, a Catholic hospital. And it was hotel due. I hate to out them, but they're no longer there. <laughs> and they refused my mother admittance. So my grandmother, who looked like she was white, because if you don't know, during when people were black people were enslaved and after slavery, black women worked as domestic workers in white households. And so my great grandmother was raped by the homeowner, her boss. And out of those rapes came two children. My grandmother who's half Irish, this was an Irishman, and my aunt, my great aunt, Aunt Anna, who looked like she was white. So my grandmother had to come up to the hospital and say, this is my daughter talking about my mother. Now my mother, you know, African-Americans are are beautiful people, we come in all shades. My mother was very, very light skinned and had green eyes, but you could tell that she had some black blood. (laughs) But my grandmother looked all white. So the people at the hospital were confused. So they finally, After my grandmother said, this is my daughter, let her in. They let my mother in the hospital. But and people in El Paso still know the story. When my mother got in, finally, they didn't attend her. No medical care, no nothing. They just left her on a gurney in the hall, period, dot, dot. And she needed a C-section because, you know, you can't go into labor if you need a C-section. You're supposed to do the surgery. Forget that. So finally, she became delirious and she became unconscious. She became really near death. No medical care at all. Now, remember, right now, Black women, in terms of uh, Black maternal mortality, three times that of white women here in 2023. So they didn't know what to do with my mother. They finally took her in to the emergency room, not the delivery room, the emergency room, because she was near death. And they decided that to save her life, thank God, whoever decided that, they decided to do a forceps delivery. So I came into this world, barely breathed when. took a breath when I got in, but they pulled me out using forceps and I had the scar above my eyes for years. So I came into the, my mother almost died in childbirth. I almost didn't get here because I almost didn't breathe. And so from day one, Victor, day one, Joe, I had to fight for my life. And I knew then as a child, I knew this story. And so That's who I am. I have to fight for women's health. I have to fight for reproductive care. I have to fight for against racism and sexism and gender identity. And for me, my whole life is about disrupting these barriers and systemic issues and policies that that keep everyone shut out, because I personally almost died or, well, almost didn't
1: get into this world. So that's my life in El Paso from beginning to when we moved to California. Well, that is a very powerful story. I am very grateful that you shared it with us because it does make me sad, though, that we are still fighting racism. We are still fighting reproductive health care. That's really sad. But you certainly have come a long way from that episode. Um, You went on to get a master's in psychiatric social work. Did you ever practice in in that? Yeah, yeah. when I was a student at UC Berkeley, go Bears! <laughs> I, uh, started
2: Our rivalry,
0: a- but that's okay.
2: <laughs> I started a community mental health center, and I started it because there were no services for low-income people in Berkeley. And I went to the university because my my you know as a social worker, my MS you have to do pra- a practicum. So I was at uh, Highland Hospital psychiatric ward and uh, Berkeley outpatient clinic. But what happened was I saw how they treated black people <laughs> and people who were poor. And it was, and I trained in clinical psychotherapy. I mean, my psychoanalysis is my background. But what I realized when during my training, they were trying to train me with people who were poor, low income, black, based on only psychoanalytic methods. And I went to my professor, I said, no, so uh, this is not working. (laughs) And so I had a paper, and the, the paper was to identify a problem in mental health. Look at what, and I think I still have that paper, look at what the solutions could be. What, what is the problem? Propose the solutions. So I wrote about the problem of the delivery model of mental health services to Black people and low-income people, did the research on what was available, and then did a proposal on how to change the modality, treatment modality, so it would be more relevant to uh, the population that we were serving. So I developed that proposal. I got an A in the, that class, developed the proposal into the, the paper into proposal. And I had to, we had a community projects office at UC Berkeley. They had never given a black student any money for a community project. So I said, shit, I'm gonna turn this into proposal. And I'll never forget, I, Kerry Kaplan probably aged 20 years in my six months of fighting with him, trying to get uh, $2,000 to start my community mental health center. But finally I just beat him down. I just said, look, you've never funded a black student at all. I am going to get money from you all to start this. Bottom line, I did. I got $2,000 and I started my community mental health center called Community Health Alliance for Neighborhood Growth and Education, Change Incorporated, because part of the problem was a stigma of mental health. I went on to the San Francisco Foundation, got $30,000 from there. I went to the city of Berkeley, got 100000 Bottom line is, as a student, I raised close to $200,000 to start a community mental health center at 2880 Sacramento Avenue in Berkeley, California. And it survived for 10 years. And I went on to work for Ron Dellums during that period, but I was able to hire, because I had raised enough money, to hire staff and a board to keep the facility running for uh, 10 years until Ronald Reagan, of course, came in and destroyed it. So my background and what distinguishes one of the factors or facts that distinguishes me from my opponents, is mental health is a big issue now, as you know. Suicide rate among teenagers. We don't see still mental health with parity, with physical health. I mean, there are a lot of issues right now around mental health. And so uh, me in the Senate is important because you don't have too many people with a mental health background like I have. And I think we have to really address mental health now in a big way with someone who's an expert and who understands those issues.
0: Absolutely. And especially for young people who are having to go through this mental health crisis right now, um, having someone like you in the Senate would be, I think, really important and beneficial. I, I have a bit of a lighter question for you, which is uh, we we had on Wendy Sherman on the podcast, and she often talks about her background in social work. And she jokes about how her social work degree has actually helped her interact with a lot of uh, politicians and elected officials. I'm wondering if that has helped you navigate politics and um, your colleagues who in this House and maybe in in the senate potentially as well how will that background help you
2: well it has helped me and i know wendy very well we talk about this quite a bit (laughs) first you have to be able to listen being a trained psychotherapist you listen you don't yak all the time you know politicians love to talk 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 and i talk a lot but i listen first i'm not going to engage in a question or debate until i hear where people are coming from and then when i have something to say it's meaningful and it means something. I usually get what I want. (laughs) Whereas if I were listening past people or trying to get my thoughts together about what I'm going to say, you miss a lot. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, you know, as a trained therapist, you understand unconscious processes. A lot of times people don't even know what they're doing half the time uh, or saying because it's so subconscious. I mean, you look at, and I'll just give an example of unconscious bias, which is really racism if, if it's uh, directed toward African-Americans. Uh, you know, you can have the most progressive white people uh, say something, and I'll give you an example. Uh, people who donate to me, or who I ask for donations for my campaign, Barbara, we love you. Now, these are mainly white people, okay? And they white women, Barbara, we love you. You've done a great job. You'd be a great senator. But Adam Schiff just looks so much like a senator. Now, these people don't even know what they're saying. Okay, but I know. (laughs) I know they're subconscious. And I understand that. At first, I started getting really like, what? You know, getting Now, you know what I say? Once I understood the, the dynamics there subconsciously, I said, yeah, you know, maybe so. Because since 1789, when the first House and Senate went into session, that's 240 years ago, There have only been two Black women serving a total of 10 years, Senator Carol Mosley-Braun and Vice President Kamala Harris. So maybe I don't look like a senator because you're not accustomed seeing a Black woman in the Senate. So, see, I had to go so I don't get angry, understand that there's subconscious bias of racism. I have to deal with it differently. So it helps a lot.
1: (laughs) Does it help you to have conversations with Trump supporters to have that kind of insight? Because we... Victor and I ask almost all our guests, because we're looking for ways to reach people who reject facts, people who believe everything that he says. And if you have any clues, I'd be happy to hear them. Okay, Joe, again, my my psychoanalytic background, these are cults.
2: This is a cult he has, okay? Now, with cults, and I know what happens with cults, and I know what happens when, uh, like, I know what happened to uh, child soldiers in um, Liberia. Uh, I know what happens when people are programmed, and these people are programmed subconsciously, and they become a cult. In order to deal with a cult, they have to be—they have to want to be deprogrammed and reeducated. These people don't want that. So, with the Trump people, what I find—the MAGA extremists, Republicans—you find something that you have common ground with. Don't—I don't try to change their minds because they're more of us than them. Mm-hmm. I don't try to change, and I, there are a lot of them in Congress. Chip Roy, for example, you know who Chip Roy is, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm trying to repeal the authorization to use military force. The only one, you know, I was the only one who voted against that, trying to repeal it. I have 49 Republicans working with me on that and I have Chip Roy as my main partner (laughs) to repeal that. And we talk about how we're gonna move forward to repeal that authorization because it set the stage for forever wars. I don't try to say, hey, you're out there. (laughs) Can't you be reasonable? Don't facts matter. Actually, one of my colleagues who's a Republican uh, who I <laughs> was shocked. Uh, he, I called him about I co-chair of the Cannabis Caucus with a Republican and the Cuba Caucus and other um, caucuses. And one of them said to me, well, as soon as you let all those political prisoners out of jail, maybe we can talk. I said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and this was a moderate Republican who has bought into or trying to buy into the, the big lie. So it's so you have to know, you have to meet people where they are. You have to be careful with a lot of them because, you know, they're dangerous, some of them. And you have to uh, understand that with a cult, uh, again, that's where my psychology background comes in. You, you can't really try to convince them of anything because you have to have, there's a process of deprogramming and re-educating with cults. And this is a cult. These are cult members.
1: So I'm glad you mentioned Ron Dellums because... Um, I had read about your working for him. And I said to Victor, do you know who Ron Dellums is? Because to me, it's a big name that I recognize. And it's, you know, this is an intergenerational podcast, we reach an audience that goes from Victor's generation to mine. And uh, he had not heard of I said, well, then you have to look him up, because it's an important figure in our past. And you actually started political activity before that. And then we're going to move on to your, your Senate race. But from what I could find, you started in high school, you moved to California, and you uh, worked with the NAACP to integrate the cheerleading squad. Can you talk about that? Because that seems like a very early age to start political activity. Remember what I told you about El Paso.
2: So we moved to the great golden state of California to be free. (laughs) I had in California For a housing act hadn't even passed, so we had to be we couldn't buy a house anywhere we wanted to. My family couldn't, so I went. We moved to San Fernando and Pacoima. Went to San Fernando Junior High, San Fernando High School. I wanted to be a cheerleader, so the criteria for being a cheerleader I didn't meet because I didn't look like who would be selected as a cheerleader. I'm black, right? And girls of color couldn't be elected. So I went to the NAACP, mind you, at 15, because I was working on work study and the president or or my boss of the credit union was uh, head of the NAACP. So I really want to be a cheerleader, but I can't because this selection criteria precludes me and other girls. So they looked at it and the NAACP said, you're right. So they helped me organize the student body and the administration. And there was so much pushback, you would not believe, at San Fernando High School. But finally... Finally, I got them to change the selection process to an election. And so I tried out in front of the student body. And guess what? I won. I was the first girl black cheerleader at San Fernando High School. But other girls of color also won. And 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 the story, the moral of that story is uh, there are two. One is my political. I was 15 years old. My first election. OK, I believe it's really important for me as a. Public figure, and especially in the United States Senate, to fight to not tinker around the edges, but to change the rules of the game, to disrupt and dismantle systems and barriers. I don't care if it's the LGBTQ plus community, people of color, women, the disabled, senior citizens, young people, anything that's a barrier to moving forward. I have to do my politics in a way to disrupt those barriers and build new ones, new rules that are rules of equity and justice. And, and so uh, I went on and, uh, you know, made, that was my mark, right? I was a tiger, I was first black cheerleader at San Fernando High School. And now I share that story about um, Adam Schiff looks so much like uh, a senator. I, I flashback, that's almost a trigger. God, when I was 15 years old, I couldn't be a cheerleader because I didn't look like a cheerleader, but guess what? I won, I won, I won. And so part of my campaign now is to get people to understand my experience and who I am and my consistent fight for people uh, who are marginalized and for cutting, pushing the envelope on cutting edge policies. That's who I am and that's what I intend to take into the Senate. And so there are a lot of obstacles for me, but I'm disrupting all those obstacles right now in the Senate race.
0: So I think that's a perfect segue to talk more about your Senate race. And I mean, it's such an inspiring life story that you have. And I think it would make history if you um, do win um, next uh, November. Talk about what made you want to run for Senate. And what are some of the things that you've been hearing on the campaign trail from um, voters about your candidacy and campaign so far?
2: Sure. Uh, well, the polls show we're neck and neck. I'm at 13 percent. This is a public poll. You see uh, Adams at 16 percent. Katie Porter is at 19 percent. People are surprised because I haven't spent because I can't raise money like you know white people can and white women can. I can't. Black women, they're barriers, but we're still neck and neck with in the margin of error. So what I'm hearing is this: How are you going to raise money to to how are you going to compete and raise the kind of money they raise? And I have to say, wait a minute, we've got to get to public finance of the campaigns. Otherwise, there's not a level playing field. So don't expect me to raise what they can raise. There's systemic barriers in this campaign finance world. So I'm raising the money to win. I've raised a lot of money over the years for other candidates, for women, for women of color. I've done my 500,000 a term to the DCCC, paid my dues. I mean, I raise money, but I can't raise, and not gonna raise, and don't need to raise what they can raise, because I have a lane that we have to have a lot of money, Barbara Lee for CA.com, if anyone wants to send a small donation, Uh, but we're putting together an intergenerational, multiracial progressive coalition. Karen Bass, $9 million, Caruso, a hundred million. You know who's mayor of Los Angeles? Mayor Karen Bass. So it's how you put together your campaign. And that is important because I'm, you know, people, once I explain to people that they say, oh yeah, and they don't even recognize that rep- that there are no representatives uh, in representation matters. So a lot of people are shocked when I tell them there are no African-American women in the um, you know Senate. And so a lot of that I have to talk to people about. But also the polls show that when people, and I was in uh, Watsonville last night, when people get to meet me and know me, you, and you have to have money because you have to be able to do media, but it, ours is going to be targeted, but Everywhere I go, Orange County, the mayor of Irvine, and my opponent, Katie Poland's district, has endorsed Barbara Lee. and had a fundraiser for me there. Last night in Watsonville, a lot of undecideds, and the polls show when people meet me, see me, get to know what I've done or read about me, then a large percentage of independents come my way. So I have to explain that to people who are undecided, and they say, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm so proud of Gen Z for change. I mean, young people get it because they know my record on climate, and if they don't, they Somehow studied about me, and which is like, really? How'd you know that? And they trust me and trust is, a. and I hear this, Victor, all over the state. It's like trust. Young people are very smart. They know who's with them and who's not. They know that this is not, and young people tell me this, we know you're not running for yourself, you're running for us. And so I'm really proud of Gen Z for change endorsement. The San Diego young Democrats, young people are really helping me. And when people see these young people in my campaign, it's like, how did that happen? (laughs) So, you know, there are a lot of like, what, how? What are you, how are you doing this? And so, but I think it's, it's, again, this is the other point. As an African-American woman, we always have to think out of the box and work out of the box because we have been through so much in this country in terms of racism and sexism and uh, having to take the back seat Well, we have a seat at the table, thanks to Shirley Chisholm, and we're going to keep that seat, and we're going to make sure everyone has a seat at the table. And so people have to understand that, and we're
1: here to stay. Well, you've mentioned another key name that resonates very much with me, uh, and I know Victor knew who Shirley Chisholm was as well, Um, but in the fact that you are all so close, and it's a neck-and-neck race, what do you say to people who say, well, why should I support you instead of... Katie or Adam what what about you Barbara makes you the one that I should want to be my senator what's your you know your elevator speech on that
2: well aside from representation matters i mean i have the experience when you look at my background how i have stayed strong i have fought against my own party i've stood against the republicans and just one example is the authorization to use military force I, I when when there's something that you have to stand in the storm and be right on and not let people pull you either way uh people have to understand that i'm the one who's not going to cave in the moment of of fire and when there are real constitutional issues i'm going to stand there with them uh, secondly when you look at how i have delivered and my progressive credentials uh they don't compare to anyone in this race I mean, I have led on so many issues on reproductive justice. I've led on cannabis reform. You know, I'm trying to deschedule marijuana. I, I stepped out there and introduced the Marijuana Justice Act before anybody even would touch marijuana justice. When you look at voting against uh, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, well, one of my opponents wasn't there; another was. They voted for those wars. <laughs> when you look at uh, the ability to work with them, with Republicans. I went to George Bush and said people are dying from HIV and AIDS everywhere in the world, especially in Africa. He signed my legislation, PEPFAR, the Global AIDS Initiative, and I had to negotiate with Henry Hyde and with uh, Senator Frist and with George Bush. Saved over 25 million lives. uh, That's just an example of how, as a progressive, I am a negotiator, a legislator, and an appropriator, and I have led on issues of poverty here in California, and my opponents have it here in California, We have 40 million people in the Golden State. 20 million people are living one paycheck away from poverty. There's nobody in the Congress who's pushed the Democrats to use the P word, poverty. So I worked with Bishop Barber, and we were primarily responsible for the child tax credit, trying to make that permanent, trying to look at the whole wage gap in terms of affordable housing and how we bring um, a living wage to people in California. I've been out there with labor unions and, and on strikes and negotiating contracts and what have you. So there's a big difference. Uh, I could go on and on. Our voting records may or may not be very similar. They probably are. But there's some key elements of leadership that people have to look at. And, and I don't go along to get along. Whenever there's uh, an opening and a gap and whenever there are um, issues that need taken on, I take them on. And and there's a lot of gaps in the United States Senate. You don't hear anyone talking about being unsheltered, You don't hear anyone talk about housing. You don't have anyone talking about environmental justice and the climate and climate injustice or climate justice. You don't have anyone in the Senate who's have the lived experiences. And that's another distinguishing factor, I was on welfare. I had to raise my kids on public assistance when I was a student in, at Mills College, uh, food stamps, MediCal. I mean, it was hard, childcare. I had to take my kids to school with me. They sat in classes with me uh, when their school day was over because I could not afford childcare. Here we are now, 2023, women, families can't afford childcare because it's out of reach for everyone. So I have a lot of uh, lived experiences that many Californians have, and that is a distinguishing factor between myself and others.
0: I mean, I think your record really speaks for itself. And, um, you know, I think that's part of the reason why there is an intergenerational coalition and movement behind your campaign. But there's also, I think it's hard to ignore, and I can totally see people trying to raise this, and I'm curious about how you address this, given the person who's stepping down uh, this term, Diane Feinstein, and her age. Um, I think a, a lot of people might, you know, raise questions about your age. And I'm wondering what you tell voters who might be concerned about your age, um, and also kind of how you address people who are concerned about age in general. This election cycle, there's a lot of people who talk about President Biden's age. How do you address those concerns and get people to think beyond age and more about accomplishments and policies and all the things that you've done?
2: Yeah, and I tell people, look, uh, people know my age. I've been in public office for years. It's about experience and being able to deliver for people and hitting the ground running right now with the experience that I have. Secondly, uh, you know, in the Black community where we say Black don't crack, well, you know, I, I can outwork <laughs> any of my staffers right now. <laughs> and, I have, and I have, you know, I mean, it's clear to most people that uh, I have the ability to fight the good fight in a way that nobody else can. And and I've been doing that and will continue to do that. And so it's no no sense in hiding my age, no sense in trying to deny my age. There's no sense in trying to dance around it. Uh, but people have to evaluate. Who's going to get the job done for them quicker than anybody else, and who's progressive? California's a progressive state, and I'm really proud to have members of our revolution. You know, Bernie Sanders, and I say to people, you guys <laughs> remember Bernie won California because you cared about his policies. He delivers. He cares about uh, you know CEO compensation and working men and women, and making sure there's more economic equity in this country. And and California voted for Bernie. They'll vote for a black woman uh, mm-hmm. with. Experience and so you know I have to be straight up with it, Victor, and not and and be authentic. And I think authenticity
1: is extremely important in this campaign.
0: Absolutely.
1: So if you get into the Senate, um, you I think you've identified some of the issues that you will continue to fight for. But I want to ask about the filibuster, something you haven't had to deal with in the, the California Legislature or in the House of Representatives. How do you feel about that? What would you tell our listeners about? getting rid of the filibuster or changing it in some way?
2: Well, I right now, I mean, for years, I've been against the filibuster and have done everything I could do to end the filibuster from the House side. But in the Senate, let me tell you what I would do. Continue to fight in the end in the filibuster, but we have to have the votes there to do that among Democrats primarily. So in addition to legislating and, and working with my um, colleagues, You know, you have a big megaphone in the Senate. You can help organize from the Senate, being one of 100. And so I'm a legislator, appropriator, negotiator, but I'm also an activist. And I would help organize throughout the country with allies to try to get members of the Senate to vote to end the filibuster. So it's stepping out of the box, Jill. It's doing doing what black women do, where there's a will, there's a way. And so don't expect me to just say I'm going to end the filibuster. Look look at me in the Senate and say, "Okay, there are eight Democratic senators who have the NAACP in their district, who have uh, chapters of Working Family Party. You know, and I I call these people together and say, let's organize and see if we can turn a few votes. And that's important.
0: Yeah.
1: Thank you so much. We understand that your time is very limited and we have a lot more questions. So we hope you'll come back. Other time.
2: Look, yeah, can I just take one minute and talk about Ron Dellums? Because yeah. this story is really important. Ron Dellums came to Congress uh on an anti-war platform. He beat an incumbent. This was during the Vietnam War. Ron Dellums was the first African American to chair the Armed Services Committee. Ron Dellums never voted for the Pentagon budget, neither do I. Even as chair of the Armed Services Committee, he was so respected until he would put forth his bill and vote against it. Uh, the Pentagon knows it, but he was very fair. He was a former Marine, the whole nine yards. Fast forward to Barbara Lee. Okay. So when he retired, I took his seat. So I, I said, what do I do to honor Ron? He passed away several years ago. I said, you know what? I'm going to, cause he was cared about young people. I said, I'm going to set up a fellowship program in his name. I'm on the appropriations committee. I said, now where am I going to sell? Where's the money to set this up? I said, I know in defense, nobody believed I could do that because he was so uh, he was respected, but he no way was he going to fuel this military industrial complex with all the money because we have enough for a strong national security without being at 880 some billion. So, okay. So I worked with Republicans and Democrats. Boom. Last year, I got appropriated and authorized a $5 million Ronald V. Dellum's fellowship program for minority kids in STEM education housed in the Pentagon. OK, so, <laughs> so that tells you if you stand on principle, if you if people you if you command respect. General Austin, nobody pushed back. They said, yeah, we knew him. We know him. He was a man who was of principle and integrity. And we're so happy to house this in his name at the
1: Pentagon. So just know lessons learned. Yes. Congratulations. It sounds like a very good accomplishment. And Please tell us you'll come back to talk more. Oh yeah, okay. I want to ask about the Equal Rights Amendment, which is one of my oh, favorite things to be working. We'll work that
2: done this year or next year.
1: Ooh, yes, for sure.
2: Hope so. I hope so. We got only country in the well industrialized country that is not past that.
0: So we've got. Definitely. Congressman, okay. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about your campaign, your life story. It's so inspiring. It's so powerful. Actually, maybe one last question. How can people um, help out if they are interested in doing so?
2: Come go for Barbara Lee for CA.com. Uh, they can do anything. They can say they can volunteer there. Uh, $5 a month is cool, <laughs> you know. Five dollars is cool because we have to raise a lot of money, but low donors and people can just do one time, two time uh, donations is great. But let us know where you live and if, if you would be part of our army uh, of voters, because like I said earlier, we're doing media targeted, but we have to have a big ground campaign and social media. Be sure to be validators for Barber League. Get on your social media, put out my launch video, which you can see on Barber League for California, doc, for CA.com. Just help us build that movement all over the state.
0: Great! Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Okay, nice being with you.
0: Awesome! Bye. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode um, of iGen Politics as much as Jill and I did with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. We will be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, so you do not want to miss that. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcasts, as well as on YouTube.com/politicon, so you don't miss an episode. Again, thanks for watching, and we will see you next week.